Hey ho, Tudor Minded People. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 53 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time, it's best to start at episode one, begin at the beginning, go to the middle. End with us at the end, which we haven't gotten to yet. (laughs) This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we don't want you to miss any of the twists and turns of our tale. We're really thrilled to have listeners from all over the world. It's amazing to see where all our listeners come from, and it's a joy to be sharing our podcast with all of you. And if you're enjoying it, we hope you'll support us. Buy some Tudor Time Machine swag. Yes, go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and get a Do You Tudor tee or a Tudor Time Machine logo sweatshirt, and you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. We'll be so grateful. In our last chapter, Constance experienced a very painful sentimental education. But now we follow her to the Arundel Inn and the solace of her good friend. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 53, The Arundel Inn, in which Constance chooses a way to go. Once safely in Philomena's chamber, Constance's story spilt out. Her release into her aunt's custody her spontaneous midnight exit from Sir William's house, her bold hunt for Rutland, lying with him in perfect happiness, and then the arse-white cockanapes declaration that she could be his mistress, not his life's love. And so she waited for him to sleep and stole his clothes, which she was very sorry for, but he deserved it. And finally, her march here, where she had decided to live out her days as a servant leaving out the direst of the circumstance, her bloody charge to end the Countess of Lennox. She told herself Philomena was safer not to know. Remembering Mildred Cecil's insinuation that she had caused her friend's death rankled. It was a cruel ruse, and she did not intend to have such an accusation before her again. "'It is such relief to see you, Constance,' Philomena said. "'The thought of you in that jail. I appeal to Lady Clinton.' "'And she did come.' I thank you for that, but I ruined it, and I cannot tell you all for now. My mind is a whirl. I just must settle. I shall be your servant, and not marry Charles. Live quietly with a dog. As you wish. And, oh God, Philomena, the relic, Moore's ring was nothing. My aunt told me it was destroyed years ago. I deceived even you. There you must halt your mind. The relic... I cherished the idea of it, of finding it, but now I do not think of it. But what store we set by it, and what trouble I put you through, and the expense. Oh, I do not understand anything. I thought I searched for a relic that would bring happiness to Stoner. I thought Rutland loved me. I thought Sir Thomas Wyatt protected a relic. All I thought was wrong. I am a naive, a fool. All I have thought on is lost. Constance closed her eyes and laid back on the bench. I do not know of the tower or your thoughts of Rutland, but I know the relic is a great loss, as if it were destroyed again, Philomena said. A ring, not even a ring made of gold can last. All is destroyed. I cannot serve the queen or marry. I am destroyed like the ring. You will be well, Constance. This will pass. Do not berate yourself. I thought he would save me. I did not know you loved Rutland. I am sorry for you. He was a wonder, Philomena. And for a moment, 
I thought I would never know another moment of sadness. Then he said he would support the children I bore him, as if, as if some other man would support other children I might have. I cannot say to you how I felt. You misread him. He did not mean it so. He must love you. A declaration to take you as his mistress, Constance, shows his devotion. Not for me, not for me, to watch his life from the side. Nay, I feel so much for him. My insides pulse with a hobbly ache, and I am wretched. Constance drank her watered wine and closed her eyes as she admitted, I am not so foolish as I seem. My desire cuts with a practical edge. I cannot be married to Charles Paget, living as a nun and mistress to Rutland. Others have had two men, and you would not be married. Come, Philomena, I cannot live in such a way. Would I be his mistress were there no Charles to marry? I cannot know. My mind is murky. Solomon's mind would be murky in such a case. Solomon's mind would be clear. He would think as my Lord Rutland, that a wife and a mistress can live side by side with ease. But how can I go about without Rutland? I tell you with shame, Philomena, that my ears strain to hear his fist at your door, and I would run to open it for him, and then I cringe to think of him, snoring across the city. Why, I ask myself, did he not wake and beg me to stay as I ran out? I wanted to get away, and I wanted him to miss me, even in his sleep. I banged against a wall to make a racket, but he did not wake, just grunted. It is terrible. I know that wish. I have done strange things just as you, Philomena admitted. Once, in the middle of the night, I decided I must have a drink, and walked two passageways out of the way in hopes that Blackjack would pop out of his room and ask me in. And did he? Indeed he did. God rot it. Love tortures us. Did you desire Rutland all this time but say nothing? I did and I did not. He loved another, and I shut my mind to my feelings. Yet not your legs, Philomena smiled. Indeed, and I have the discomfort to prove it. The sting can make your eyes smart. And in walking, trying to show a modicum of grace. Drinking the whites of eggs will smooth the way. It does, mourned Constance. It does, and my life is wrecked. I cannot go anyway. Rutland will not have me. Yet I swear to you I will not return to Charles Paget or to my aunt. I will live here as a servant, like Alice. Oh, dear heaven, Constance, not like Alice. I must find you a dress to do you up as a servant. I believe you will make Marianne jealous. Oh, stay, Philomena, stay. I must tell you more of my broken heart. Philomena poured another cup of wine. How could he? Oh, heaven, how could he? Constance grieved. If you had heard how he declared himself with some perfect poetry. Heaven and hell, how did he know it? Do you think he used it on others? Oh, my. Philomena could not bring herself to answer. Constance went on. And before, he snuck into prison dressed as a plague doctor to see me. He did. We wanted to kiss. It was nigh impossible not to give in. The air was on fire. I was transported. And in the garden he lifted me. Oh, Jesu, I do not want to think on that again. Constance sprang to her feet. Mistress Philomena, I am your servant now. What should my name be? Not Ned, Philomena. I had forgotten. What about Blackjack? He will suspect me. She sat down with a thud. 
Oh, Philomena, I would not bring you half the misery I feel. You need not fear. Philomena passed her finger back and forth through the candle flame. Blackjack and I argued. Again, he took other lodging. Oh, why? I think you do not want him far from you. Tell true. I am sad. What would you have me say? I am lonely for him. But there was such a strong mistrust between us. Because you are a Catholic and friend to Astonna. Nay, for Blackjack it is his mad allegiance to the Queen. Blackjack loves you, I am sure on it. He would come to you. It is pride and not our monarch, my dearest friend, that leaves you lonely. Philomena dropped her head. You see how I am. But I cannot stop myself. I cannot ask him to come. Besides, you may be wrong. Perhaps he does not love me truly. Avant, we shall have a new day tomorrow. Constance, you will forget Rutland, and I shall forget Blackjack. Falk knocked on the door. Mistress, Sir Charles Paget awaits you. In a moment, Philomena shut the door. Shall I hide? begged Constance. I shall keep him downstairs. Wait, be still, I mean it. Yet Constance's mind reeled. Philomena would come to a poor end. She could not stay at this inn disguised. The idea was preposterous. She could never hide in London. Dressed in black, a feathered hat rising off his head, this pageant menaced the lobby, ominously tall with a stocky young page at his side carrying a trunk. What fortune to see you here, sir? Philomena's lightest tone. He flung his hair back and made a face Philomena had seen before, one that said, Your beauty, lady, has been noted. This was a slippery deceiver. Mistress, you are always free with welcome and cheer, he sailed back. And is this not a night for it? Would you have a cup of Malmsey, Sir Charles? He came closer. Mistress, it is a night to weep. My love is gone. My own Constance Donna. Mistress Arundel, my own Constance. Philomena studied him. Why was he hunting Constance? Sir, I believed her to be held at the poultry compter. She was released to her aunt. What glad tidings you bring. When may I visit? Mistress, I believe you knew of it. Sir, she did not come here. Above all, I wish to see my friend. She may have returned to court. You should go there to find her. She is not at Whitehall. Then the Swedish ladies. They are on their way to Sweden. Oh, so sad. They were diverting, were they not? I have no other thoughts as to where Constance might have gone. I am sorry, sir. The smile fell, and he implored. I alone know Constance's true path. I alone must bear the price of her salvation. His disturbing sincerity, dressed with threat, churned Philomena's stomach. I honour the love you bear my friend, sir, but I would not worry for her soul. Lady, do not sport with me. He stepped closer. Falk was hovering, and the tower appeared in the doorway. I say in your Catholic ear that her soul is mine to care for. Your loyalty does you honour, sir. Mistress Arundel. His voice was low. She was forced to lean in. I leave, bound for Spain. I cannot tarry. Constance is to accompany me. She desires to live as a bride of Christ. I am her safe conduct to a holy life. If I leave without her, it shall be a mark on my soul. I, 
I will bear the stain of her impetuous ruin. Sir Charles, you bear a heavy burden. My heart goes to you. Charles advanced a hair, watched by the looming tower. I tell you this as her friend, in Constance's bravery and devotion, as so befits my spiritual charge. She has become the eye of the storm. The Howard agents search for her even now. She must go with me. I will take her to Dover by a careful route. I shall wait in the courtyard of St. Giles beyond Cripplegate until seven of the clock. If she does not come, she alone must answer a broken promise to God. Charles bowed and swept out of the room. Such a strange ruse to call out Constance. Charles Paget was trying to frighten her into giving away Constance's whereabouts with that ludicrous story about men searching for Constance. What reason could Sir William's men have to look for her? And yet her friend had been arrested. A wariness came over Philomena. Constance, Philomena said, returning to her study. Charles Paget was below with strange report. Constance rubbed the cup to her lip, drained the contents, then filled it again. Tell me, Philomena urged, is it heavy news? I am a dishonest friend. I have told you only a bit. I cannot tell you more. Why so? What leads Sir William Howard's men to seek you? Philomena's temper rose. If you keep things from me, how can we prepare? These are dangerous folk. I can send a man to the door. I will call. Do not. It will bring attention and they will come. Who will come? Oh, fie on it. I heard at the Howards a plot, a murderous plot. There? In the house? Indeed. There was a meeting of many men about the Scottish trouble. I ran afterwards to Rutland. That was true. But even more to flee those men. I see how it plays in their minds. They must fear I left to betray them to the Cecils. Dear God in heaven, I care nothing for any of it. But they fingered a soul to carry out this horror, and it was me, Philomena. It is impossible. You misheard. A young girl for such a thing. You? It is without sense. I cannot believe it. I cannot tell you all, but I must leave here. No, we will be careful, Philomena urged. They will not rest until they find me. I heard so much, and that I took flight makes me suspect. Philomena, if they find me, they will compel me to murder, and I shall not do it. We will hide you. I must leave London. That is not possible. We will be very happy here. Your fortune will turn, Constance. Philomena, the way things turn, I shall find my way to the block. Stop your mouth. Do not say so. It will pass. It will all pass. Philomena felt the improbability of her own words. Philomena, tonight I am free. I must away, before it is too late. Charles Paget, Philomena put forward, even though seconds ago she despised him. He suspected you were here, and he told me of the Howards so that you might have a chance. This very night he leaves London for Spain. He promised to wait for you until after dawn, at St. Giles' churchyard beyond Cripplegate. I know the scene you suffered with him, Constance, yet he burns for you, in his outlandish way. He is not what or who you desire, far from it in truth. But you shall have safe conduct out of England, dearest. He shall give you protection. You know it is true. It was a way out, Constance thought. A way out that would leave her breathing, at least. Charles Paget would give his life for you, Philomena pressed. Constance would go with him. 
She must. How desolate. Perhaps it is a mercy not to love your husband, and not to bear children. Perhaps the brotherhood of the true cross is my fate. Oh, my friend. Philomena, I am so unsteady. I was filled with a certainness when I lay with Rutland, sure of warmth and comfort, and it was a lie. Charles did not lie. He told me all. I credit him for that. He is the best answer. I am loath to leave you. I see your state, but I must. I must prepare some things for you. I will return before you can recite. The lover's lute cannot be blamed, Philomena said, trying levity. Charles was disturbing, Constance thought. She was afraid of him. In the meeting he had heard the decision. Would he expect her to return to England to carry out the plan? Could she appeal that a nun should not have such a blot on her soul? She would not borrow that trouble. The choices before her were possible death at the hand of William Howard, betrayal of her family to Lord Cecil, or flight with fanatical Charles and the shelter of the Brotherhood. All things considered, flight was the best of the worst. Philomena's arms were full as she barreled through the door. How much can you carry, Constance? Two dresses? Weighing each, she put one aside. It is too heavy. Look at you. I think you may be safer dressed as you are. This dress shall be for latter days. And here, take this pie. You must have something to eat or you shall faint away. Constance said, Unbelievably poor wind comes to my mind. Did you know she loves your folk? I did not know it. Poor man, does he love her true? She says they wish to marry, and I swore to give her something. Fear not, I shall do it. I have brought the girl no end of worry. Can you retrieve my things and give Win an item of worth? Keep the rest. Constance's eyes filled with tears. Oh, Philomena, I shall miss you. I cringe to be tied to Charles Paget so far away. I would not have you in danger here. You must go. It is the best course, the only course. I send to the tower and he shall see you and Charles sail. Constance followed Philomena as she hurried through the inn to the stables, where the tower was saddling the horses. Tower, this is a great service you do me. My friend may face danger, but with you as her champion I shall not worry. The tower bowed before Philomena. I will retrieve a demi-lance, mistress, and my best sword, and a pistol too. You will be well, Constance. Charles and the tower shall keep you safe. Dover. I have never been half so far, and then to cross the ocean. I shall never survive. You will. The Snakenborg came from Sweden, and she lived. With her princess. If I travelled with my queen, I would welcome the journey. But myself with Charles, to leave my country and kin, it is a banishment. I banish myself. Rutland loves me. How can I leave him? What if the world is flat, and we sail off the edge? Constance shook her head. Strange happenings. Philomena wished she could spare Constance her worries. There was nothing to say to her friend. A dangerous journey waited for Constance. But as she could not, she held out a book. I brought my copy of Tottle's Miscellany. It is not too cumbersome, and I would not have you face a journey without something to read. Constance knew she should reject such a rich gift. But her fingers stroked the paper edges, and she could not resist a mischievous grin. The nun shall disapprove. Yet I shall take it, and read it under cover. Oh, Philomena! Constance watched as the tower slipped his sword in the saddle's sheath. Would they be killing someone on their ride? Pitikins. 
It is fine the lady wears man's garb, the tower said. It is easier to ride. But, Mistress Philomena, I beg pardon. Would you not have us take the river? Nay, tower. It will be replete with Howard's men, and Charles Paget chooses the land route for Constance's safety. Should you cross the water and not find horses for hire, you shall be easy prey. Pass at Cripplegate. At this hour it shall be locked. Here is gold for a bribe. To Gravesend, then, mistress. Yes. Leave the horses at the Cornish Cock Inn. Master Wellett is the innkeeper. He knows my mother well, so he shall be careful. And yet, mistress, Howard may send men the south route. Then we will meet them at the port. Let us pray not, Tower. I shall put all my faith in you. I will not fail, mistress. Constance took Tower's strong hand, and he helped her up onto her horse. You shall see so many wonders, Philomena said. You must write to me as Ned. And you must answer as Ned. Constance tried a smile. What do you call this horse? She asked the tower. White stockings. A fine mare, my lady. Not given to skittishness. She will serve you well. And this is Magnus Nassus, the tower said, rubbing his own steed. Philomena kissed Constance's hand. Goodbye, dear Constance. Goodbye, dear Philomena. Constance pulled her hood far over her face and followed the tower out of the courtyard. She turned to wave and saw Philomena had disappeared. Her heart sank. There was much to do at the inn. Her friend could not wait. The mistress is yonder, the tower indicated. Hidden in the shadow of the building, Philomena waved wildly. Constance waved back. Partings were terrible moments. It was a final farewell. Philomena was an unequaled friend, an irreplaceable soul. Constance's behavior in this chapter can be a challenge for 21st century people like us to understand. Well, as modern women, we want to see Constance strike out on her own, not to fall back on the care of a man, and a man she doesn't really like. And we want to see Philomena inspire her friend to be independent, not to suggest Charles Paget is the best choice. But independence, as we think of it, it was really hard for women of this period to achieve. And it would have been impossible for Constance to escape on her own. She would be a moving target as a woman alone. She would be immediately suspect because a woman on the road by herself was a woman who had done something that made her unfit to be in normal society. And people wouldn't give her aid, they wouldn't trust her, they wouldn't believe her. Charles's sense of responsibility to Constance is demeaning and patronizing to modern readers, but for Constance, in her situation in this moment, it's really the only lifeline. In a lot of historical fiction, the characters, especially women, make choices that would have been pretty much impossible for them to make in their own time period. And modern audiences want to see the heroine be bold and self-assertive, and that's natural. Women openly defy men, they make their own decisions, they defend their independence, and then of course they canter around on horseback, <laughs> decked out in women's armor. I mean, it's fun, I love it. <laughs> no, it is fun. But you and I both felt we wanted to show how strong women had to be just to achieve anything at all in this period, because the limitations our female characters would have been up against in the 16th century because of social conventions, because of laws that kept women subject to men, it's just 
kind of inconceivable for us. It was so pervasive. And the thing is, is that they were subject to men, even with a woman, a very powerful and unmarried woman on the throne. Queen Elizabeth I is often cited as a feminist icon. As admirable as she was, I don't think we can call her a feminist icon. She considered her own royal person equal to any king, and she believed herself capable of ruling alone. Obviously, she never married, and she never relinquished a drop of her personal power or the power that the state had bestowed on her. And in that way, the way she claims herself and her role as a leader, that is an amazing example. Of course. She was sort of a feminist for her royal self. (laughs) (laughs) And she was astounding. She was incredible. She was unprecedented. And no one ever really came after her again who was in a similar situation. So not to take anything away from Elizabeth, she was an amazing, astounding, incredible woman. But she didn't extend thinking herself equal to a male ruler to necessarily believing that women as a whole should be equal to men in society or in the law. We don't know what she privately thought, but she certainly didn't go around revolutionizing the legal and social situation for 16th century English women. And she might not have seen herself as a woman like one among many women. She may have just seen herself as such an anomaly. Yes, yeah. queen woman. Yeah, no, a queen know, first. Yes. Well, a monarch first. A monarch. Who happened to be a woman. Yes, and yeah. that's sort of at the tippy top of the great chain of being. Mm-hmm. And then other women were just in a different place. Even though she was a astonishing example of an educated woman. She was an incredible intellect. Her sister Mary was also... Highly educated. Highly educated, which is sometimes, I think, underrated. I agree. And her stepmother, Catherine Parr, and her cousin, Lady Jane Grey, and her cousin, Mary Stuart. They all benefited from the humanist ideas on educating women. Women of the upper class, anyway. Sure, but even educating upper class women was a hard-won victory. The focus of advocacy for women in this period was education. No one was ready to argue that women could and were and should be equal to men in the eyes of the law. Feminism, as we think of it, suffrage and equality, it didn't really begin until the end of the 19th century. That's not to say that there weren't plenty of women who spoke out for the fair treatment of women for centuries before that. There was a really strong idea in medieval or medieval and early modern society that as well as being not worthy to educate, women were also inherently less virtuous than men, the weaker (laughs) vessel. They were untrustworthy, sneaky, temptresses, and accused of being overly docile, but also conniving. (laughs) It's it's busy. It took up all the woman's time to fulfill all these expectations. And of course, Eve tempted poor Adam with the apple. Regardless of the fact that Eve was tempted by a much stronger personality, the devil. (laughs) In other words, like coming out of this worldview, the women who defended women in this period kind of had to work to bring women up to zero because they were considered morally less than zero. These women argued that women had 
equal virtue to men. And Elizabeth probably would have read the works of some of these women. Well, Laura Terracina was a 16th century poet and writer from Naples. I had never heard of her before. Me either. But apparently she was the most published poet of the 16th century. Her chivalric romance, influenced by Orlando Furioso, was reprinted 13 times. She wasn't just writing for her friends and family who no, were sympathetic was, to her. She was super popular. She was super popular. She defended women's virtue mainly and argued for their education and encouraged other women in their literary pursuits. If she was that popular, I'm so sure Elizabeth read her. In Italian, no doubt. Elizabeth was quite a linguist. And she probably also read Christine de Pizan. Maybe in French. Maybe in French. <laughs> Pizan was a medieval best-selling author, originally from Venice. Italy was churning out some pretty incredible women in this period. And her father was a physician and an astrologer who went to France in the service of Charles V. So Pizan married a royal secretary to Charles VI, the next Charles. But when her husband died in the plague in 1389, almost all of his estate was actually withheld from her. Her father had also died the year before her husband, so she had no direct male support. Or male authority. As a widow, she had less money, but more freedom. And she turned to writing to supplement what little came from her husband's pension. She began by writing love ballads, but she developed into a renowned author, and her works were commissioned by members of the royal family, so she really did have patronage, and people paid her to write. Her works were dedicated to Charles the sixth wife, Queen Isabeau, who had her own husband troubles. Well, because unfortunately, poor Charles VI was prone to psychotic breakdowns, and Isabeau had to try to keep the government steady while he recovered, which was no easy task as the rest of the French royal family was vying for power. Pizan gave her a you-can-do-it-girl call-out. <laughs> she dedicated a series of works on the virtues of women, especially regarding another French queen, Blanche of Castile, who served as regent of France twice in the 13th century, and she dedicated this series of works to Queen Isabeau. I love it as well as financially supporting herself and her three children. Pizan supported her widowed mother. Mm. That was female power at the court of Charles VI. So the Book of the City of Ladies is her most well-known work. It's a defense of the virtues of women. It presents 36 women from history whose lives challenge the notion that women are inherently immoral, superficial, untrustworthy, feckless, and not worthy of education. And these 36 women range from Mary Magdalene to Queen Dido of Carthage. It's really an interesting group of women. This idea that women were inherently immoral, superficial, untrustworthy, feckless, and not worthy of education <laughs> was so strong and common in the Middle Ages. It and was just a given. It was a given. It was something you had to prove wasn't true. And this was true before the Middle Ages because we can't thank the classical world for having any respect for the virtue or intelligence of women. No, and also after the Middle Ages. Christine did her part to advocate for women, and by lady, she meant a woman of noble spirit, not a class distinction. The way she's using the whole idea of what it means to be a lady is revolutionary, too. And she addresses the criminality of rape, 
that should be a given. <laughs> but again, in the Middle Ages, before the Middle Ages, after the Middle Ages, in many ways, women are blamed for being raped, not the men's responsibility. And she also addressed women's natural ability to learn and their aptitude for governing. But, and this is not a criticism, I mean, she lived in France in the 15th century. She regarded all of these qualities in terms of how women can aspire to be better wives, better mothers, and more religious devotees. She's not ready to suggest that women could be equal to men. The humanist idea of educating women is always couched in the idea that it would make them better wives, better helpmates to men. Whatever Christine thought privately, I think she kind of had to sell her ideas within the context of how it would serve men to do these things for women. The textbook definition of feminism is the belief in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. The goal of feminism is to challenge the systemic inequalities women face on a daily basis. So if you consider that the strict definition of feminism, Christine de Pizan and Laura Terracina cannot really be considered feminists. Neither can Mary Wollstonecraft, who's often cited as the first feminist, because in her 1792 Vindication of the Rights of Women, she stopped short of actually declaring that women should be equal to men. And again, I am not faulting her for that. You know, when you're trying to make things happen and improve things, unfortunately, sometimes you have to put them in the context of what's going to win you a place at the table. To say out loud that men and women were equal and should be equal economically, I mean, that would have just been too, too revolutionary. Being rejected by male society at this period, even now in many places and in our own society can be kind of a scary place. Change is hard and change makes people very anxious. And it's slow and it's incremental and it builds on itself. And often it doesn't go in a straight line. It does not. And in the 15th and 16th century, women writers argued that women were morally equivalent to men and worthy of education. That was their stand. But... By the 19th century, women were considered too virtuous and too tender-hearted to manage the outside world and too delicate to overtax with education. Making women morally superior to men meant that they weren't capable of existing in the mean, mean world. So the, the tables got turned again to keep women out of the system. Nevertheless, Christine de Pizan and Laura Terracina were incredibly important in the long journey of women's rights. And actually, so is Elizabeth I. No, she proved a woman can rule on her own. And not as a regent for a space of time when a male ruler is out of commission, but on her own, on her own for 44 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. And the women around her, women like Lady Clinton and others of Elizabeth's privy chamber, they had unprecedented power, more than women had at court in previous reigns, because they had intimate access to Elizabeth. And that was not because Elizabeth made a conscious policy of promoting women. It was just an outcome of the unusual circumstance of of Elizabeth's court. In the court of married rulers, there were two separate households, the king's and the queen's. And the king's household was the real power center. In Elizabeth's court, there was only one power center, hers. It's interesting. Think about some of the other women we've discussed, like 
and de Pisaliu and Anne Boleyn herself, they gained influence because of sexual relationships with King Francis I and with Henry VIII. But both began as ladies-in-waiting for their respective queens. They crossed over from the queen's household to the king's, and that's where they were able to grab political power. It's true. In the court of a king, the only way for a woman to gain influence was to have sex with him. We see that in how these mistresses came to be some of the most important political forces at court, especially in France. I mean, we've been talking a lot about France. But it's the way the whole system was set up. It shut women out unless they could make this leap to the king's household. Then that's really only for one woman. At a time. At a time. (laughs) (laughs) But some of these women were in that kind of political power and influence for, for, for years. For many years. But it's not as if it opened, again, the door for lots of women. Lots of women. In Elizabeth's courts, women actually had jobs that gave them daily access to the sole reigning monarch. And she liked to talk to them about current events, and she bestowed gifts on them for their service, and she gave them money and land and positions. She solicited their opinions, and she had high expectations for them in terms of their education their intelligence, their wisdom. You know, she definitely did depend on them. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and they made use of their time with her. They promoted their family members. They won favor for themselves. They controlled access to her, which meant they could take bribes from others who wanted that access. Henry VIII had his esquires of the body, who basically did the same duties that Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting did. Henry's minions, as these men were sometimes called, They were some of his long-standing friends, and their job was basically to hang out with him. Even though some of them were his long-standing friends, it didn't stop him from executing them. I keep thinking of Henry Norris. Yes. Yeah. They were, as a body, the most important men at court. And Elizabeth's ladies had unprecedented influence serving in the same capacity for their queen, just like Henry's minions had this incredible influence. Unfortunately, Constance has wrecked her relationship with Mildred. And also Lady Clinton, the two women who have the Queen's ear and the power to help her in this crisis. Which leaves Charles Paget and the Brotherhood of the True Cross. Next time we'll see Constance set out across London with the Tower. A rough journey. So join us for more of our story and more Tudor-minded talk. <laughs>